What's up, everybody? So I want to let you know that the Alpha Brain Golden Ticket Sweepstakes are still going on. And that's just a rad opportunity not only to stock up on your Alpha Brain or give Alpha Brain a try. Because if you haven't tried Alpha Brain, it's definitely one of those tools that's different than any stimulant you've had and gets your brain firing in an absolutely different way. And that's what our clinical research has shown, and that's what everybody who's tried it. You know, we've sold over a million bottles of Alpha Brain, and the results are in. It works. It's awesome. So this is a great opportunity, though, because if you get the Golden Ticket Sweepstakes, everybody is a winner, and there's a bunch of cool shit that we're giving away, from kettlebell sets to different other products, to discounts. Every single person is going to be a winner if you go to the golden ticket sweepstakes so check it out on it.com slash golden ticket and then enter the code and fill in the entry form there's going to be a grand prize for one of you which is going to be a trip out here to austin and on hq so you'll be able to come hang at the hq and do all the awesome on it things so definitely check it out go to on it.com slash golden dash ticket and get your 30 count or 90 count bottle of alpha brain Consciousness, mindset, health, relationship, business. Welcome to the Aubrey Marcus Podcast. Welcome to the greatest podcast in the universe. Oh, wait, that's just my ego talking. <laughs> we are here today with Ryan Holiday, author of Ego is the Enemy. Also been on the podcast last time we were talking about Obstacle is the Way. Um, do you have any more tattoos that are going to turn into books? Or, uh, or? Well, so I got Ego and Obstacle. Obviously, my books on marketing wouldn't make for great <laughs> tattoos. Um, uh. the, e the Ego tattoo came before the book title. Yeah. It was, I was just thinking about it. And then it was some nice leverage with the publisher when it came to You're like, listen, <laughs> yeah. we can't change the title. Can. Of this it's book. already done. It's permanent. It's already done. <laughs> That's awesome, man. So definitely want to get into the book. But um, how is it? The first question I had for you is, are you hypersensitive to your ego throughout this whole book launch process because your book is titled Ego is the Enemy? I, I am in some ways. I mean, it's it's nice. So I wrote a book about stoicism and how basically every bad thing that happens to you is, is an opportunity. So I can't really complain about anything publicly <laughs> or people will call me a hypocrite. And then if you write a book about ego, the first question everyone or the first thing everyone does, I think especially when you attack something that people are kind of like possessive over yeah. um, or it's like a maybe a vice, they immediately try to like see if they can discredit you in some way. So like if you if you attack someone's ego, the first thing that they want to do is look at your ego to justify their own. So it's been a night like I, I've had to be I've had to make some decisions about what to do or not do. And then you just have to think about all these things like am I am I doing, you know, this interview, not this one, but am I doing this interview because like it will move books and it's good? Or am I doing it because like I think it'll make me feel good or, you know, sure. you have to. It, it's it's like an extra question I have to ask myself that maybe I wasn't before. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I think, you know, what you're saying about people get offended. What I found about the ego, in, and I really liked your book because we come at it from different points of view. I mean, I'm encountering my ego in a very experiential way yeah. when I'm in a float tank or when I'm doing psychedelics sure. or out in nature, all of these methods that I have to uncover these aspects of myself that I have to confront. And then you provide this kind of background and stories and history in this context and um, so it's a really kind of cool synergy between the things. But the one thing that I've really encountered and also shows in the book is when people are defending their ego, they defend it as if it's their own flesh and blood. Yes. Like they think their ego is them. Their ego tells them that it is them. Their identity, their sure. me is them. So when that gets attacked, it's just like how an animal would respond if its flesh was attacked. Yes. It gets violent. It gets defensive. It goes on the offense. It does all of that shit. It just reacts emotionally. Yeah. Well, I think what's interesting is, so you posted it on Instagram a couple of days ago and a bunch of people were like re reacting to it in that exactly what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. And so first off, it's like, I don't have strong opinions about books that I haven't read because like that's, <laughs> you know, that's like not a reasonable thing yeah. to do. But it, I, I would be fascinated to see the people who instantly go, ego's not bad. There's some good parts of ego who say that without having seen my definition of ego or right. read any of the book, I would... I would bet a lot that they are people who I would, if you and I were to meet and be able to sort of see behind like a, you know, a, a one way uh, mirror, we would judge as being particularly egotistical or see the, the consequences of ego in their life. 
And then, and, but and the reason I think that is they don't they don't know what my definition of ego is. And typically, yeah. when you have a strong opinion about something that you're not familiar with, that you're just reacting to like a two second impression, that usually says everything about you and nothing about the thing that you're reacting sure. to. Yeah, and people always love playing the moral superiority game. And one yes. of the ways that you that they've subverted that game is, you know, you say one thing and then they'll say, oh, actually, you know, it's it's this other, actually ego is a different way. Well, it really is all semantics. It depends on what type of ego you're talking about. Abs- absolutely. You, you know, there's there's healthy ego and then there's really what the book is about, which right. is about the, the other side of ego. Yeah. The and, monster. And, and I think what people are... People are are very just because something is good for you in your life, like like they'll be like, oh, I'm a successful entrepreneur because I have a big ego. I'm not arguing that you're not. And so this goes to the the sort of the the flesh and blood thing. Just because uh, it's been mostly a force for good in your life, as far as you're currently aware, that doesn't mean that I might not also have a point, or that it, there might not be value in looking at it from a different angle. So I think that's interesting how quickly people will will try to dismiss some idea um, because it's counter to what they currently believe mm-hmm. instead of, and, and ironically, I think this is an egotistical thing to do, instead of interacting with that sure. idea and challenging it. And like what you're saying is you, you go out and you pursue things that put you in touch with your ego so you can see it and experiencing, experiencing it, which I think is much better than what most of us do, which is, act in total ignorance of it, even though it rules our life and yeah. guides so many of our decisions that in usually in a negative way. Yeah. Yeah. No doubt. I think, uh, you know, another thing people will do is they'll point to people with obviously large egos that have money and be like, well, work for them. Sure. And, you know, so, you know, I think for me, I don't know too much of Steve Jobs story, but I've read a little bit. I saw the documentary or the movie at rather, and clearly he had a rather large ego. Yes. And clearly he was very successful. But just because there's correlation doesn't mean causation. You know, the totally. dude the dude was a f- incredible genius, you yes. know. And whether the ego helped him or hurt him, you can't tell. He might have just been an even more of a freaking genius if it wasn't for the times where his ego got out of control. Well, that's what I think is so fascinating and we look at that so rarely, right? It's like, is Kanye West a great rapper because he has a huge ego or is he a great rapper because he's a great fucking rapper and he did an incredible amount of work and he he has like this laser focus on the craft. I think yeah. what you would say is that Kanye West is a great rapper despite his huge ego and he's bad at a lot of other things like say sitting down in an award show and letting other people accept an award because his ego can't let him do that. And so uh, you've met tons of successful people and a lot of athletes have enormous egos. Mm -hmm. But I think what most of the people who have those private experiences with them, especially the people who are very loyal to them, they can see that behind closed doors, the in, in a lot of ways, ego is the thing that is preventing that person from either being more successful, like, like, we have no idea whether Steve Jobs accomplished all that he wanted to accomplish. I bet he didn't, sure. right? And, and so we don't think about why. We only see what he did and compare ourselves to him. And we also don't have any insight into the cost that it had on other people inside his life. And if he were more aware of those things, would he would he act differently? Like yeah. we, we think of Steve Jobs inventing the iPod. We don't think of him berating a Whole Foods employee for making his smoothie too slow, which is like a real story. Or we don't see him parking in a handicapped space, you know, for no yeah. reason. Well, we always make that mistake of defining success so narrowly. Yeah. You know, we'll look at somebody who's a completely miserable person, but they have a lot of money and some fame and they're like, fucking made it. Great success. You know, top of the world. And that person later commits suicide and you're like, Oh, whoa, never saw that coming. Well, they were successful in a very narrow definition of the term. But how do you define success? How do you define a life well lived? And one of my favorite quotes is um, the eulogy that James Baldwin's father got. Like the, the preacher said something like because uh, his father was not a great man. And, and the, the preacher <coughs> said, like, 
thou knowest this man, but thou knowest not his wrestling. Like he, you have no idea what other people are struggling with inside. And, and oftentimes when you look at successful people, like how many people were stunned that Tiger Woods turned out to be like have, you know, issues with sex addiction and he was cheating on his wife and lying and, and, you know, paying these prostitutes and all these things. And it's like, that's it, the psychologist called the general attribution fallacy. You see him so, so in control of himself with so much poise and so brilliant at what he does in front of you, which is play golf, that you just assume that everything else in his life is like that and that he's got it all under control. But in fact, it was the opposite of that. That was like the one thing in his life that he was doing well. And so you've got to take that whole calculation into effect. Yeah. Or, yeah, that whole equation. Yeah, for sure. And there's so many people like that. I mean, I think you um, you tell the story of the aviation tycoon. His name's Slipping Howard Hughes. Howard Hughes, yeah. And and again, a lot of people have throughout history looked at him as a great success. Yeah. But you dig a little deeper under the surface, and that was a miserable human being. Totally. I mean, first off, I would I think when you actually look at the facts, he's probably the worst businessman of like the 20th century <laughs> in the sense that most bad business people fail one time, right? Most of us weren't given... Uh, a company by our parents that had a monopoly on the drill bits required to drill for oil in the largest oil boom in history. And so he had millions and millions of dollars in a privately held company, ultimately billions of dollars that funded like these complete boondoggles and ridiculous projects um, and also happened to create some accidental successes and some of which, you know, he was responsible for. Of course, I'm not saying he's he's he did nothing right. I'm just saying that a normal person with that same ego would have failed once catastrophically and we never would have heard from him again. Learned. But there's, yeah, there's this famous uh, line on his deathbed, one of Howard Hughes's aides, and Howard Hughes surrounded himself with these sycophants. He liked to hire Mormons because he believed that Mormons would just do whatever he told them. So he hired these young, uneducated Mormons who worked for him. They would do whatever he said. Um, that ultimately they were the ones that ended up like enabling his drug addictions, and that's why he died this terrible death. But towards the end of his life, one of them goes, you know, he's he's probably whining about something, and and the aide was like, but you've had this wonderful life, aren't you happy? You've had this wonderful life. And Howard Hughes looks him in the eye and he says, um, if you could swap places with me, I guarantee you, you would be begging to swap back with me before the passage of the first week. And it and that's that's not what you see in the Leonardo DiCaprio movie about about Howard Hughes. And it, one, because it doesn't make for a good movie, but you have to consider the totality of that experience and ask yourself, is it worth it? Because Howard Hughes died. He's not sitting there enjoying, you know, his riches mm. after death or, you know, sitting back and prideful of all his accomplishments. He's dead. He's just fucking dead. <laughs> and he died really terribly. And he probably died sooner than he needed to be because his ego was so monstrous. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's, you know, people just make that fallacy all the time. They yeah. try and money is this kind of score. And if you go out of life with a high score, you won. Yeah. But you're dead. So the you're game's over. Oh, that's the game's over. The game ends for all of us. And there is no win or loss that's attributed at the end. It's a cumulative win throughout your life. And ego, ego is, you know, ego is the ultimate obstacle. Yes. You know, and in that way. Yes, it can be turned to your ally, yeah. but you have to address it, you know, and you have to be aware of it. And I think awareness is that very first key. You have to be aware when it's your ego being activated or when it's, you know, not your ego being activated. And I think that's one of the great things that your book does is it, it allows these little bells to go off when you find yourself and you can recall something that someone else is doing going like, oh, yeah, that is ego. Oh, I, when I do that, that is ego. That's the first step, awareness of your own ego. I, absolutely. And it's not like I think one of the things people assume from the title is that like there's some magical thing you can do to be in a place of egolessness. Right. Mm -hmm. That if you like meditate or you take this drug or something that what I'm saying is that egolessness is the state that you want to get at. In fact, and what you were just saying about it being sort of this process and awareness that came to me from someone that you introduced me to. You introduced me to Daniele, mm -hmm. um, uh, whose book on the warrior path is amazing. Yep. And he and I were talking and I think it's in the book also, but he, he uh, I was talking about ego and the fight against the ego. And he was saying, you know, enlightenment is like sweeping the floor. You sweep it once and it's clean, but it doesn't stay clean. You have to do it over and over again. And it's it's the pro it's also the process of sweeping that there is meaning and and and, and that's the sort of the process. And I think that's what I'm saying about ego. I'm not I'm saying that 
okay, you're sitting down and you're making a decision. Are you gonna you know, hire this person or that person? Are you gonna invest in this company or that company? Are you gonna write this book or that book? The process is, okay, let me make sure that ego is not guiding that decision. It's not corrupting that decision. Like you're thinking about whether you should yell at someone or not, making sure that in the same way that you wanna make sure that's not an emotional decision, you wanna make sure that it's not, oh, I need to dominate this person or my ego will yeah. feel like they're dominating me. It's that, that's what I'm talking about. So I'm not saying, you know, ego is the enemy and you should drop a nuclear bomb on it and make it, you know, disappear. I'm saying that it's, it's like a sparring partner that you're working with every yeah. day. Ultimately, it's going to be a part of you and any of efforts that you have to just project some part of you elsewhere is the process for minor schizophrenia. Like it, totally. it's not going to work. You just have to be aware of that eternal process. And really, as you said in the book, you got to give it love. Ultimately, you got to be like, Hey, ego, I know you're all ruffled and you're angry and it's like a kid with veins popping. I'm so mad <laughs> right. now. You got to be like, settle down, little guy. Like we're going to be we're going to be all right. You know, you don't you don't yell back at the kid and punish him and throw him in solitary confinement and torture him. You know, it's just like, hey, buddy, like you're a little freaked out now. Settle it, settle it down. Yeah, it's about comforting that inner child that is inside you that's throwing a temper tantrum, basically. Yeah. And. So, so you, you have to have sympathy there and you have to have some compassion for yourself, but also making sure that, you know, your compassion for yourself isn't rationalizing or justifying, you know, it's not a coddling kind of compassion. Yes. Like one of my favorite mystics, Don Miguel Ruiz, he calls it ruthless self-love. Okay. You what know, does that so, mean? so him, there's, there's the coddling type of self-love, like you know, it's okay if you drink alcohol, you've had a hard day. Well, alcohol's fine, but sure. whatever. It's okay yeah. if you shoot this heroin. It's been a rough week and it's been a little while. Just, it's fine if you have some heroin. You, that could guise as self-love. Sure. But it's this coddling kind of like, right. oh, boo-boo, you know, we'll, yeah, yeah. we'll take care of you. Whereas ruthless self-love is being like, no, motherfucker, you're not going to do that heroin because you're better than that. And I love you too much to right. allow you to take, you know, to go grab that needle and shoot up. You're too special. You're too valuable. Like you're not going to do that. And it's that, that kind of paternal love, like true paternal love yeah. influence, like, like ruthlessly telling him, like you would tell your friend, like, right. like when Joe Rogan told Brendan Schaub that he shouldn't fight anymore, you right. know, that's ruthless love for his friend. It's a brutal thing to tell someone you're not good enough to continue to compete in the heavyweight division in the UFC, but he's telling him that not as an insult, but out of true love, but it's ruthless. No, that's so two things. So one, I think on the self-love thing, um, Neil Strauss has that book, The Truth, which I think is amazing and just came out and he talks about um, the inner child work and he, it's it's about reparenting that inner child. So, you know, a parent does, re, a parent is give their child everything they want. They give them what they need and what, what is good for them. And so I think you're doing that. Mm -hmm. And and I have a whole section in the book, what you're talking about with Joe Rogan on, I call them fight club moments. And those are the moments when you come face to face with truth in your life. So when, when Joe Rogan is saying that to him, the problem is ego makes it so hard to hear that truth sure. because your identity is in you as a fighter. Some, someone is saying you're not good at something. Someone is telling you you should quit, which you've heard is bad. You know, you've all these things. And so often when we're in, the, like, I think most people only think about what ego does to us when we're on top. Right. Like we know that like, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely that, you know, we, we see how like Donald Trump's ego is is monstrous. And, and but we don't think about what ego does to us at our lowest points. Right. And that's ultimately really who def what defines who we are, because mm -hmm. those are the really pivotal moments. Like you're not going to make that many decisions when you're successful that are going to especially if you're really successful, that are going to affect every facet of your life. But it's when you're facing bankruptcy or you're facing that moment when you're you stay in the ring and maybe you get hurt or you walk away or you know someone calls you out or, or points out some criticism of you it's do you listen and get the value out of it but also not you know i think ego sometimes at our lowest moment either doesn't listen or it listens completely right and it says okay you're a worthless piece of shit yeah you know you're a loser all it says all those things so in in um, Anne Lamott has this uh, thing. She says, writers listen to this radio station called KFKD, KFK, 
KD or K fucked. And, and in one ear, it's saying you, that you're amazing and that what you're writing is the greatest thing in the world and blah, blah, blah. And then on the other, it's that no one's going to read this and you suck and uh, you should quit now. And you have to turn that station off and, and on both frequencies. Yeah. Uh, you know, it brings me back to a time where I came, you know, I really confronted an aspect of ego that I wasn't seeing very well. That was right when I started on it. And when I started on it, went on the Joe Rogan podcast, which was a great blessing, exposed it to sure. a lot of different people, but he also has a lot of skeptical minds there, right. which is great and something I really appreciate now. Right. But at that point, they jumped. I'd never had people attack me before. Right. right? I'd never had people say anything that I put my heart into was, sure. was shit. And I was a snake oil salesman and a lifetime fraud. And, right. and I started reading all of this and right. instantly my ego became totally like, fucking hemorrhoid sure. level inflamed right, right? right right so i started lashing back out and right. i was freaking it was going alternating from dis- depression to being pissed off because you know i really believed in what we were putting out and and it took me in this really downward spiral like i was just sure. laying down on the ground like fuck how am i gonna like deal with this and i made a couple calls the first one was to Bodie miller my good friend the skier and he actually had an experience where after the Torino games where he was caught partying and he didn't yeah. win any gold, not caught, he didn't give a fuck. Right. He was out partying and didn't win any gold medals. He actually had the lowest approval rating that these like uh, PR agencies track yeah. of any oh, like celebrity athlete, or whatever. Yeah. Any, any athlete in history, even after OJ was like riding around in a Bronco, like he had a, he had a lower score than right. OJ did sure. at that point, you know? So, and he was getting death threats right. and all this stuff. And he's also been on the top where he's won right. world championships. And he's like, listen, man, you got to be the sole judge yes. of, of your actions and what you do. And you have to play that fair. Like people are going to pump your tires when you don't deserve it. And people are going to talk shit when you don't deserve That's it. That's a great analogy. And like it, either way, you know, you're going to get, you're going to get screwed up. So just follow, just know what you did, know the work that you put in, know what you put into the formula, know what the research you've done, know everything you've done to make this as good as possible and judge yourself solely on that. Yeah. You got to keep an inner scorecard because the external scorecard uh, contains so many things that are outside your control, right? Yeah. Like what happened to him, for instance, let's say, or what happened to you? So more him, but what happened to him was obviously a result of some error that he made or, you know, yeah. sort of not thinking about his image. But at the same time, how much was the, the particular news cycle at that moment? Did it, uh, you know, amplify or depress it right so yeah. there's so much you don't control and so you have to focus on what you do control I, like i think the best rule i think hemingway said this is like you don't read the good reviews and you don't read the bad reviews either because they are they are both going to warp what you think about yourself and really what you think of the work matters the most mm-hmm. and and i think that's that's extraordinarily difficult for people to do because the positive ones are what you what a lot of cases what motivated you to do whatever you're doing in the first place wrongly so but it's like people become writers because they want to be accepted by a literary establishment or they people um start companies not because they need the money but because they need what the money might get them which is nice cars which will impress women or whatever you know they're they're trying to do things to get you know other people's uh approval or recognition and there's a quote I have in the book from Robert Louis Stevenson where he's saying, you know, it's um, w- one of the worst things in the world is it, nothing is harder than climbing arduous hilltops and finding humanity indifferent to your achievements. And so that's why it's like you, you're the one that's not going to be indifferent. You're the only one that's going to care. Yeah, I think, you know, you see, I think initially you you do have this desire for that positive feedback. Yeah. But then once you're actually doing positive things you can scroll through 50 glowing comments and that one barb from somebody yes will affect you like way more way disproportionately to all the praise it's almost like i get praise 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 oh that motherfucker said this you know and then that then that really hurts you and that's that's the thing from that and so so after bodhi you know i talked to joe and joe had you know really a very stoic perspective on it and he was like listen man you got to look in every one of those negative comments and you got to see if there's anything possible you can learn. Sure. Because, you know, the people who are trying to praise you, they're going to brush over the stuff mm-hmm. that you could actually improve and learn from. Yeah. And so he's like, try and find that kernel of value totally. and everything. And then, then then you can turn that criticism into something that you're grateful for. Sure. And it's a hard move to make, but it's, it is the move to make. Yes, because 
Uh, I think it's Neil Gaiman. He has a thing. That, I mean, this matters more to me as a writer, but I think you can extrapolate it out to any kind of feedback. He's saying like, when people tell you that something is wrong, they're usually right. Like with your work. Mm-hmm. So if if I'm like Aubrey, I hate your podcast. Like I'm pro. Uh, I'm I'm right in that it's it's not doing something for me. Right. But then if I'm like, what you should really do on your podcast is have like ten guests at the same time. <laughs> right. Like I'm. You, he's saying you're usually wrong. Like yeah. I'm usually wrong with my solution. And so what you want to do with feedback is like if someone has some incredibly negative reaction to you, you're like, okay, look, this is this is probably for a lot of things that don't have to do with me. But clearly something I've done has triggered something. I should try to think about what that is and decide if that's a trigger that I want to keep doing. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And 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 so you're you're looking, you're not just looking for the kernel of truth, like like Joe's saying, but you're just looking for the fact that you're just looking for people raising the red flag yeah. and then you're doing your own analysis from there about what the source of that flag might be. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes, that makes real sense because ultimately, you know, at that time we launched a product and we, we didn't have our own clinical trials behind the product. We yeah. had ingredient research and shit like that. So that really fueled this momentum to get really good labs and third-party double-blind randomized trials on our products and and get those out and now you know we're just getting our fourth trial completed and have three successful trials and so we've done some of these things that you know the impetus because these are wildly expensive and um you know we would have probably done them anyways but taking that criticism and then applying them has really been a great benefit to the to the company and then another thing to to remember too is you know, as so before that used to bother me more, right. but now that we've gotten like farther and farther and the trials are continuing to validate our product with, you know, scientific methods, I still get those comments, sure. but it's like the, it's like the remnants of that initial wave yeah. that haven't been, haven't been rectified yet. And it just, at this point, it's like, you know, we're, we're continuing to come out with, so it stings less, you know, cause yes. you, cause you don't, your, your own internal judge doesn't have grounds to criticize you upon those same grounds right so you kind of discard it it's like if you're really comfortable in your sexuality and someone calls you gay you just laugh you know whereas if that's that's like an issue for you and you're insecure about it not that you should be insecure about whatever sex you are but any kind of insecurity that someone calls you on if you're if you if that can worm in because you're doubtful that's when it really stings. Right. So I think critics and haters are basically showing you where you need to put some armor, right? Mm-hmm. Because they, they are ruthless in looking for flaws yep. in things. And then once you once you sort of address some of those things, then what you realize, I think the second level is you start to realize that some people are gonna hate you no matter what. <laughs> and and that what they're they're just they're gonna endlessly move the goalposts on you. So you realize, oh, okay, you don't actually care about this. You just don't like me. And so, the, but but the egotistical response to those pe- to to that often is like, you can't stand the fact that you don't like. Look, you can't please everyone all the time, right? But ego, I think, wants that endless approval. It cannot stomach any kind of criticism. It's an insatiable monster. <laughs> well, you look, again, not to make this political, but you look at someone like Donald Trump, right? And and what's so fascinating about, so one of my friends was saying, he's like, anyone who goes on Twitter rants should immediately be ineligible for the presidency. <laughs> for And he's saying it for this reason, because the job of the president is going to be to say and do things that people don't like. Yeah. And a lot of those things are gonna happen behind closed doors. And you have to be like, hey, look, the ambassador to Cuba was a total asshole to me in this meeting. And I have to be okay with that because yeah. I'm pl- my game or my plan involves all these different chess pieces and I'm not going to blow up on some random troll who's just bothering me. Totally. You know? What if Putin meets him and says, wow, you really do have small hands. And then yes. all of a sudden Donald Trump gets so offended and gets so bent out of shape that we're at war with Russia. Like well, he is that kind of, he has that kind of emotional response, which is and, dangerous. And that's not a hypothetical. Like I tell the story <laughs> in the book, Angela Merkel, who's like a hero of mine, I, I'm not super interested in her specific politics, but there was a famous meeting um, where she sat down with with um with Putin and Putin is Putin is a shark basically like he he is uh in in my opinion someone who's just sort of not operating by any of the rules that the rest of society does he's like like what it must be to like fight someone who's just trying to exploit any weakness right yeah. and he had heard that she was afraid of dogs and and who is who is she Angela again? Merkel is the ch- the three term chancellor of Germany right so they were meeting obviously they have a lot of issues that they have to work out and a, a lot of 
difficult negotiations, all of which have, you know, the threat of potential nuclear annihilation on either (laughs) behalf. So it's very serious, right? And so she sits down in this meeting. It'd be like if I came to meet you in this office and you heard I was afraid of dogs. What Putin did was he arranged for his door to be opened and one of his hunting dogs to accidentally come into the room. So imagine I'm scared of dogs and this big Russian hunting dog, and Russian hunting dogs are terrifying, Yeah, runs into the room and runs up to her. And and this was, a, they found out in sort of retrospect, a very clear intimidation attack, uh, intimidation tactic. Yeah. And so the emotional egotistical response would be, how dare you, right. like to respond in, in the media, to, to put some sanction or, you know, to, to, to try to respond to how people typically respond to bullies, which is give bullies exactly what they want, which is complain and whine and fight or whatever. And she just sort of sat there. She sort of stoically like bit her tongue and, and dealt with it. And then afterwards, she just kind of never addressed it, but very clearly helped leak some of the information publicly because we know about the story. And so the result is that Putin's sort of naked aggression and insecurity is what comes clear. and. Yeah. And Merkel comes off as someone who is is brave and in control of herself. And when you hear that story, you're not you're not like, um, oh, Putin's great, and and Merkel is. It. You're like Merkel. Wow, she's that's exactly what you want in a leader mm-hmm. is someone who doesn't rise to deliberate provocation. Yeah, yeah, that's that to me when I've when I've kind of marinated deep in in thought about the essential quality of a leader it's someone who is not moved by either fear greed or ego that yes. just had that can stay a true course regardless of these external pressures because the higher that you get the more external pressures there are the more yes. opportunity to make you know to be greedy the more opportunity to be fearful because you have more to lose the more your ego can get inflated because people keep pumping your tires and the best. So, so the pressure gets even higher so you just have to be rock solid that's why they have that expression that power corrupts and yes. ultimate power corrupts absolutely mm-hmm. it's because the pressure increases so with the pressure your own grounding has to increase you just have to be steady as fuck you know that that kind of the idea of of king arthur although even the, even some of his things how he dealt with you know guinevere and lancelot clearly he was emotionally attached in sure. certain some of those stories and i think there's some humanness to all that but the ideal leader is not going to be moved by the external forces well so when my book the obstacles away it's it somehow made its way into professional sports and and so i got to to meet some people who work for the patriots and one of the coaches was telling me he was like the key to Bill Belichick's success, the reason he's he's built like one of the greatest franchises in the history of sports is he was like, Bill Belichick does nothing out of ego. He didn't say Bill Belichick has no ego. Mm. He said Bill Belichick does nothing out of ego. And this coach, he was telling me, um, he's like, ego is the cancer of our profession because you bench the quarterback not because he needs to be benched, but because he threatened your ego. Or you refuse to bench the quarterback because you will lose that game and you don't want to lose the game because of your own ego or the reason that the coach is yelling around hitting things is not because necessarily that's what you know he didn't he didn't do a calculation he's like okay the team needs to be sort of shocked from their stupor i'm going to throw a calculated temper tantrum he's throwing a real temper tantrum because he's not in control of his emotions bobby knight was not planning to throw the chair exactly as a, as a strategic that, that's move. a weakness right it totally. might have accidentally worked and sometimes it does work especially for tyrants like oftentimes they create such an environment of fear and intimidation that in the short term it works but event they're sowing the seeds of their own destruction as well as bobby knight eventually did yeah yeah no doubt and i think kind of what we were talking about earlier when you have this emotional response the emotion leads the emotion is primary and this is something i've really tracked in my relationship, you know, because yep. me and Whitney are trying a non-monogamous relationship, which is incredibly trying. It is like putting as much pressure as possible on your ego and on and on the, yeah, on I, the relationship. Wow. So, and what you find is is particularly emotion will lead, sure, and then logic will come in and try and fill in the pieces, and it yes. gets shaky as shit. The connections it's you making. You said this, you and said that's why this I'm little mad. thing. Well, you didn't respond in text message exactly in this way and this right. you'll start nitpicking these details of why you're angry when really it's just your ego has been threatened you know yes. and and you feel some kind of insecurity that's come up and your logic will try and figure out how it makes sense but people take that as for real yes you know they you know because 
when that emotion leads and come out comes out first the mind then just scrambles it gets in total scramble mode and it's just putting legos and popsicle sticks right and whatever kind of connection it can make to justify that emotion when really what it is it's your emotion it's just right. your ego being threatened well I, remember, I was talking to my therapist a couple months ago and i was explaining some complicated thing that i got into right i was fighting about this or i was mad about this and i'm sort of walking through my logic and she was like well why or well why and i would say well like well i think this you know or i think that and she was just like you know ryan like thoughts are not facts and and i think that's a oftentimes the things we are upset about, if we actually deduce them down, they're not based on like some objective reality like this, you know, this happened, you punched me in the face. It's you said this and I think that that is a disrespectful thing. Mm. But just because you think it doesn't mean it actually is and that doesn't mean that it actually was intended to be that, right? And so um, if you can remind yourself, I think emotion, obviously we're reacting emotionally, but oftentimes we think we're not acting emotionally. We think we're operating by this set of principles or, or you know, the rules that we've created. And we forget that these are constructs that we have come up with and they just feel so real to us because we've imbued them with a certain significance. I'm not saying that everything is relative and nothing matters. And like, personally, I wouldn't do that kind of relationship. It's not what I want. But it's like you realize all these things that you think are essential and true as Steve Jobs said, are really just made up by people who are no smarter yeah, than you. You find all the things that you're clinging to to defend your your identity. All right. of these all of these sandcastles that you built that you think are made of stone. Yeah. Like, I am the most attractive man in the world, says the ego. Like, right. My partner would never want satis- right. sexual satisfaction from anyone else. Right. You know, somewhere in your in your heart, you know, that's bullshit. But your ego doesn't think that. Your ego thinks that's true. So right. any kind of attraction to somebody else is like, Oh, fuck, you know, it, it throws sure. all that into question. It's been really, you know, probably of all the value that's come of it, the greatest value has been just coming face to face with that form of resistance sure. that is so intense that the only response is to overcome it. Like, like you can't sure. just sit with it and you can't try and subvert it and outsmart it and depress it. And like, like for a minor ego attack, I remember back in a while in other relationships, a minor ego attack. I could I could commit myself to become better than that other person. Like, oh, sure. I'm just gonna work out harder in the gym, right. or I'll, I'll be richer than that person. Oh, I got more fucking Instagram followers right. than you, bitch. Yeah, yeah. You know, like you can kind of play that game, and but when it's when the pressure is enough, and you realize that's just not gonna work. All right. of that scram. I have to deal with the internal cause, which is my own insecurities, and and fill those insecurities with your own confidence and self-love and saying, look, I am a completely unique individual worthy of love. I don't have to compete in every category. And I'm okay with my partner experiencing other things from other categories. In fact, I'm happy if she gets to experience something that's superior to one of my own attributes because I have plenty of my own unique attributes. And it forces that fucking thing and like, I'm not trying to promote right. this as like a great idea for everybody. It's it's a fucking hell of a process. It's like Imagine. it's brutal. I mean, it's like yeah. it's like you don't recommend the Iron Man to everybody, right? Sure, you know, sure, it's like sure. you have to really want to do the Iron right. Man. Not everyone should go into space. <laughs> no, yeah. exactly, right. exactly. But if you know, as far as for me, that's it's put me in touch with areas of my ego that were dark. Sure, because even when you do plant medicines, it's a lot. You know, you 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 touch on it a little bit, but there's some deeper. Darker there's stuff a very, that's, that's harder to see. Very essential biology, not, not necessarily essential to modern society, but essential to our evolutionary process that, look, we didn't, it wasn't like just some guy was like, hey, let's have everyone be an on, monogamous one day. And everyone's like, okay, it works. The merits totally justify it, right? It's that these these urges or these this sort of order that we've created as a society is for the most part good for people evolutionarily that's why we invented them Mm -hmm. and so at what the societal edifice that we bring around that um plus the biology makes it i would imagine incredibly hard to challenge you're not it's not like oh like hey i i like to eat sugar even though it's not good for me it's like this if i don't do this thing it you are challenging like the the fundamental fear that we have biologically, for instance, of raising someone else's children, which yeah. is basically the worst evolutionary strategy that there is, right? And so that's 
you're not only challenging the psychological ego, but the the hormonal, biological it goes millions deep. of years of evolution. It goes that deep. would be insane. <laughs> and it's, you know, but but again, it's just you seek out growing levels of resistance to grow stronger. Yes, sure. You know, and that's and that's really the beauty of it. And that's how it kind of dovetails with your first book is that the ego is an obstacle. Yeah. And it just happens to be one of the primary obstacles and worth exploring as a unique obstacle yeah. all on its own. And that's really what this this book is. Well, that's what I was thinking because a lot of people have asked, like, which book should I read first? And I was like, I actually don't know if it's like a sequel or a prequel. I think it's the same. It's, it's you know, a lot of times what we face are external obstacles and there's sort of a framework for doing them. And I think stoicism is a good one, although there's lots of really successful people that I talk about in the book that have come up with ways to how you deal with like what's in front of you. But I would say almost all those strategies are impossible if your ego is sort of like a, a cloudy haze between you and whatever the right thing to do in a situation is. So it's like they're related in the sense that we all face obstacles. Our ego makes overcoming those obstacles or dealing with those obstacles probably harder than it needs to be. And also our own self-importance is often its own obstacle, right? Because we can't, um, we're just, it's like, it's like uh, there's this force going around like shutting doors in front of us and we don't even know that they're there. Yeah. And, and then we're like, why don't I have what I want? Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's really interesting when, you know, self-awareness is so key in all of this. And when you, when you're around someone who lacks it and you're, and you're very kind of open to seeing it, it's one of the most challenging things to be around. Yeah. You know, when you, when you can see those programs playing without the user, the operating yeah. system aware of those programs, when you see ego in action and the person is unaware that that's ego in action, it's, it's really, really tough to deal with. And, and you see it often in their stories. Your book is filled with those different things. I mean, I told the story on the Joe Rogan experience about Xerxes. You know, I mean, his people, some of his people had to have seen. Of course, they all must have they, seen. Everybody Why are we whipping seen? this stream? It's, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's water. It can't feel anything. Yeah. Yeah. So they, so basically, for those of you who haven't heard, the stream overflows, knocks down some bridges, and he orders the stream to get lashed as a punishment. The stream. Yeah. You know, and he and cuts he the people. Yeah, he beheaded the people who built the bridge. <laughs> yeah, so clearly everybody around just seeing this and being like, "This is a, this is a monster. This is an unchecked, well, unchecked fun, monster." A funny thing about that, I was thinking just now. So that before that, he wrote this letter to this mountain, mm -hmm. and it was basically a warning. It was like, "If you get in my way, we're gonna have a problem." Like, and obviously he didn't write this letter himself. So imagine that you're the scribe who has to, who has dictated this letter that's going to be addressed to a mountain. Like, and, and I've been in that position. Like I've had, I've worked for a lot of important people who have, you know, enormous egos. And I like, they're like, what I want you to do is go on this Gawker article and from fake accounts, write comments defending me. You know, like, I, you know, it's like, yeah. there's like one, nobody cares. Two, if you get caught, this will be really bad. You know, yeah. but but you you get the one of the problems of ego when it become when you become successful is now you have resources to indulge all these ridiculous things. Like you know, a less powerful Xerxes doesn't have the luxury of beheading these random people or yeah. writing these letters. He's too busy, right? And so it's it's often that success then opens up these in deranged fantasies of 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 indulgence you know and and i think that's yeah that's well he happened. had no there's no force that could self-correct that he right. was the unchallenged you know he's emperor god of king. That. he's the god king and then there's certain industries where you're so insulated from competition like in howard hughes he yeah. had a monopoly on drill so no one could take that from him and challenge him because of the mistakes that he was making you when you get insulated from that and you see that in certain roman emperors but yeah. there was also times in rome where everything was kind of in flux. Like yeah. you, you started slipping, your general right. was gonna take over sure. something. So there was at least some kind of check and balance for ridiculous behavior. But <laughs> if you find yourself in that position where there's no check and balance, you have to have your own check and balance. You know, you have to be able to, cause you're not gonna have that ruthless love from your buddy. You know, you're not gonna right. have sure. Joe Rogan telling, at a certain point, no one could tell Alexander the Great shit, even Aristotle, right. Right. you know, at a certain point, you don't have anybody around you who can do that. And I think it's another thing you see with a lot of powerful people who have ego issues is 
they lack true peers who would just tell sure. them some shit. You know, like, hey, bro, don't send that letter to the mountain. That's ridiculous. You know, well, like. And, and that we think it's like, oh, you just have like an entourage of sycophants. And, and like we blame that. It's like, oh, no one in your life. You, you didn't have anyone in your life who could say anything. And that's why you overdose overdose or whatever. But what we forget is that what happens is like, OK, we all have sort of crazy impulses, crazy ideas. We all have our own ego. What happens is like when you accomplish something that's truly unprecedented or like think about how hard it would be to be the heavyweight champion of the world, right? You literally beat, like you beat with, you beat them. Not like, hey, I, I had a higher score than you. You beat yeah. the other strongest person in the world into submission, yeah. right? And so there is no one else who can tell you things because you've you've beat all those other people. And and so what happens is we have ego and oftentimes we we make we take actions out of ego, but the really dangerous thing is when that ego is proven right, right? Like you have a crazy idea, it becomes a company. All of a sudden, you think every crazy idea that you have is equally valid. And and so like you start to you start to there's that line. In, have you watched Billions yet? Mm -mm. Do you know Brian Koppelman? Mm -mm. You would love Brian Koppelman's podcast. He's amazing. But so he wrote like Rounders. He wrote the okay. show Billions. Um, Anyways, in, in, there's this scene in the in the show towards the end where the he's this billionaire hedge fund manager, and he 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 does this really bad trade against everyone's warnings, and he keeps pushing through and blah blah blah, and eventually he loses a lot of money. But the line is, he says, you know, um, when enough people call you Superman, you start to think that you can fly, and so it's like when you when you touch a couple things and they turn to gold, you start to think you have the Midas touch and that's when you do the really awful thing. So I think when, when you look at successful people with ego, you can't just look at the fact that they're successful now. You have to look at you know, the fact that every day they're taking a gamble that favors the house, not them. And just because they make it all the way through, you know, just because uh, Nassim Taleb says in The Black Swan, he's like, just because Casanova didn't get murdered by any of his uh, girlfriend's husbands yeah. doesn't mean that he didn't risk it a lot of times and it couldn't have happened. Right. And we forget that. Yeah, no, that makes sense. I, I remember playing basketball. There was always, you, know, you always knew the the people on the team that, you know, if they took a bad shot and made it, it was worse yes. for your team. And you see that in you totally. know, like, like the Allen Iverson kind of archetype yes. where he, he takes some wild, crazy shot and he makes it. It's almost worse than missing it because you're like, oh, fuck, here comes seven more shots. Kobe is like it, that. You know, following it, that it's going gonna, it's gonna to be even worse. Yeah. 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 You know, and, and that's that's definitely something interesting to, to say. It's like these things that you think are blessings, right. you know, like when you get lucky. Yes. can really be a curse, you know? So it, it's it really nothing is a blessing or a curse when you're just staying in balance. It's like, oh, that's interesting. That worked. You know, that was cool. But if but if you allow the ego to add on top of that, I did this. It this says was something about this me as a was person. me who yeah. I was genius all along. The world right. doubted me and I stuck to it. And then. All right. Good luck with that. Have you watched? Um, I'm forgetting. I'm forgetting who it is. Um, but it's a documentary about Troy Duffy. I'm forgetting the name of it. It's called Overnight. He's the guy that wrote Boondock Saints. Yeah. yeah. Have you seen this? I've seen Boondock Saints. But okay. You got to watch this documentary. It's called Overnight. It's by Troy Duffy. So he writes Boondock Saints, you know, in his bar. And it's this, the script is so popular. Harvey Weinstein buys not only the script, but he buys the bar and gives it to him. So it... If 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 Troy Duffy was a humble, hardworking person, this would have been the best thing that ever happened to you. He has a business he can depend on for the rest of his life, and he's got a future as a screenwriter. Instead, it confirms every egotistical, delusional notion that he ever had about himself. And so he he pays for a documentary crew to follow him around as he uh, does, you know, makes the greatest movie of all time. And it's just this. It's, it's watching ego embodied. It's insane. And ultimately, I think he gets fired off the movie. The movie does really well, but totally in spite of him and, and all that. And, and so that's what happens is that th this ego can confirm, or the, the success confirms all the bad habits that you had with your ego in the way that like, for instance, in jujitsu, like being physically strong can cover up for Lack bad- lack of technique and i think ego ego can have this the success can have the same effect on toxic ego habits that are laying in wait 
that's kind of a scary thing if you do, if you do bring it back to Trump too yeah, though because totally. let's say he gets elected with all He'll of have his, learned nothing with all of his antics yeah. and, and then he gets validated as president of the United States despite all of the things that he's said that's just going to embolden him like I'm on the right path what well, you know I what I mean in that way Trump winning will be him losing in that you know what I mean yeah. in in the sense that like I don't think it could possibly go well right <laughs> and and if it goes badly, the stakes are not like, hey, that was a bad presidency. It's like, hey, remember when we blew up the entire world on accident? You know, what, you know what I mean? The stakes are so high. And like, so look, maybe you can get away with being an egotistical personality on Twitter because the stakes are not very high. But not everything is so pointless. Yeah, it's an interesting, interesting thing that we're in there. Well, there'll be a sequel at some point to your when book and they'll be using all, right. they'll be using Donald Trump as examples. When he destroys us all in World War Three, I don't think anyone's <laughs> going to be like ego really worked out for him. Ego is the enemy part two. <laughs> right. The Donald Trump story. Uh, there's some there's some other great stories in the book. One of the ones that really stuck out to me was that meeting between Orson Welles and William Randolph Hearst in yeah. the elevator about Citizen Kane. Yeah. Tell tell that story because that just that was just a cool story that so, comes out of there. So Orson Welles created a movie um, which which became called Citizen Kane that was based on in a lot uh, in large part on William Randolph Hearst, who was a newspaper baron who created Hearst Castle. Which is have you ever been? No. You got to go to Hearst Castle. It's okay. amazing. Um, it's a monument to ego, but also amazing that we get to experience it. Um, but so he creates this movie. It's based on a lot of industrials. It's about the powers of essentially getting everything you want in life and it not being enough, right? And so it's about, you know, the corruption of power and, and all this stuff. It's a fascinating movie. Obviously, it's considered the greatest movie of all time. But William Randolph Hearst decided the movie was about him, even though he hadn't seen it, that it was negative and that he should do everything he could to stop it, even though he's like an old man. And so uh, he, he, he sets out and he... he in large part succeeds the movie fails at the box office many people don't see it orson wells the filmmaker is banned from all hearst newspapers which would be like you know being banned from the internet essentially right <laughs> like it's just crazy and and it you know in 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 many ways uh stalled the career of a brilliant filmmaker and there on on opening night in san francisco Orson Welles and William Randolph Hearst happened to be in the same hotel at the same time. And they um, and uh, they walk into the elevator and Orson Welles <laughs> invites Hearst to come. He's just like, hey, look, I, we had all this thing. Do you want to come? And, and Orson uh, and William Randolph Hearst says, uh, no, I don't. And uh, he says, well, you know, Citizen Kane would have come. Uh, Charles Foster Kane would have come. And then he walks out and and, you know, what, there is this uh, Orson Welles' uh, wife or girlfriend um, at his funeral sort of lists all the things that happened to him negative in his life about like stuff like this. And she's like, I can promise you one thing. It never made him bitter. And I think that's so powerful. It's like this. It's it's everyone's worst nightmare that like a rich person with bottomless pockets and an axe to grind comes after you and tries to destroy your life. Right. And they succeed in some mm -hmm. ways what is your reaction i know my reaction to that is i fucking hate that person yeah and how can i get back at them or how can i win you or, go you go count a monte cristo on them. yeah <laughs> right like like uh like yeah. nick denton and and peter Thiel, like uh peter Thiel trying to destroy gawker for outing him for being gay i have some complicated opinions about that but you know <clears throat> the the response is to try to to i can't let them do this to me Right. And and what I think so impressive about Orson Welles is he's like, well, that happened. And now I'm going to get back to work on my next movie. Yeah. You know? The key thing, man, is anything that you're afraid to to be exposed. Ego is like a little armored tyrant. And, you know, really, our job is to be invulnerable enough because we have enough self-love that we can strip all that off and say and be able to take any assault or any insult and just take it with a smile because, you know, it's not going to trigger that thing. That's to me, in my mind, the ultimate goal. That's the impeccability that we'll never probably achieve. But to me is, is the vision of just the ability to go through and no matter what the insult that was slung and no matter what happens, what, what goes on, that you could just kind of take that in stride, take that deep breath and, 
and keep moving forward without the reaction. But know? I think it's not just self-love, although I totally agree with what you're saying. What I tried to say in that chapter is that it's also about loving that person, right? Mm -hmm. There's this line in, I think it's from the Bible, I'm not religious, but it's saying it's like, doing doing kindness to your energy your enemies is like pouring hot coals on their head yeah. um which I, I love the imagery of it but but i think one of my favorite songs um is a song by not a surf it's called always love and the, the chorus is like always love because hate will get you every time and so the problem is it's not just i have self-love so i can brush this off it's i'm gonna try to really think about that person that's doing this hateful thing to me and and like appreciate them as a human being and understand that they probably one don't think they're doing anything hateful or mean and if they are like since we've all felt hatred in our lives like we've hated hate hate is a horrible thing to feel it does not make the no one's like oh i love hating people right like it's it's not a pleasant feeling and so if anything like i think you know if, if the ideal situation to Charles Foster Kane is to, is to think like, this is an 80 year old man who has unlimited wealth, who is acting in such a petulant, horrible way that it must be very unpleasant. This should not be any, the golden years of anyone's life. And the irony is that he's accomplishing the opposite of what he's trying to accomplish. He's yeah. proving that he's not only not, the, he's proving that he's worse than the character in the movie. And so if, you can pity that person or feel compassion to them that's the right thing yeah and i think pat, compassion versus pity pity is a, pity has a certain kind of like snub and a condescension to it so it's genuine compassion it's looking at them as you living a different life like we've all had that yeah. we've all had that how dare you moment where the ego gets inflamed <laughs> yeah you know and so to look at anybody who's exhibiting this with genuine with genuine compassion yeah. is and is really key and to see that see that element in yourself that's what one of the deepest most profound spiritual teachings of the hawaiian kahunas is called ho'oponopono and that's exactly that that's identifying any situation in someone that's annoying you and bothering you and then meditating deeply on where that is in yourself okay as a method to, to find that yeah. compassion for the other person they take it a step farther saying that if you work on healing it in yourself it will heal it in them that's where it gets a little woo woo but yeah. regardless if you're talking about compassion see that thing you know so orson yeah. welles can see that aspect of william randolph hearst where he's trying to destroy his enemies then wonder and think back to those times in his life where someone has come at him and he has this you know blown up hyperbolic right. reaction and be like I remember I see that part of myself I see that in him and I remember the damage that it did to me and so you can have genuine compassion there. I think and, it's a great point point. and there's some pragmatism in that approach too you think about the civil rights movement it's like okay 400 years of tradition uh, the white people have all the guns that all the laws are on their side they control Congress and the Senate uh, the president mostly southerner you know Everything is stacked up against African-Americans at that point. And so, um, like, I'm a big fan of Malcolm X, but I would argue that his response worked. The stick that Malcolm X wielded only worked in conjunction or in, in lockstep with the, the carrot of Martin Luther King, right? Mm -hmm. And and act more than a carrot, Martin Luther King realized that they were outnumbered on essentially every front. And as he said, hate is a terrible burden to bear. The entire idea of like not reacting and just in some ways sympathizing with how ab absurdly irrational these people were being and how, how eaten up with hate and fear they must have been that sort of guided his strategy. I don't think the civil rights movement is possible without it's fundamentally that philosophy of love and compassion towards the person who is doing who's sicking dogs on you and shooting you and tying your children to cotton gins and throwing them into the river to drown like the worst things you could possibly imagine human beings doing to you that's what white people did to black people in in the united states and yet this amazing man who had his own ego and and you know cheated on his wife and did bad things created a philosophy of compassion and love that i don't think the civil rights movement would have succeeded or would have taken decades longer without yeah. 
it's it's the only way to truly move forward and and in, in absolutely everything and it's funny you see this you see this failing all the time right now with these different kind of political identities sure. the the feminists or vegans or vegans attacking hunters in this way or right. hunters attacking vegans or people attacking someone who's in it you know fairly innocently in their intention wearing right. a headdress and all of a sudden like a thousand people talk Let's about him as a them. racist yeah. and just eviscerate this person sure. like that hate is not going to cure the problem that hate you know yeah we did t ridiculously horrible things to the native americans but the response of just taking some kid who's probably has a mild affinity and respect for the indian culture that's why he's wearing it probably right. i mean right they're not, you don't know, not, you don't know yeah, but right. there's a very good chance that that's it. And just destroying him as someone who's appropriating the culture and bringing, bringing it to its knees is, is really the wrong approach, you know, and it will always, any kind of hate towards anyone is going to yield the wrong approach because it's going to cause people to entrench themselves, get defensive, and there'll be a blowback always. Well, I would argue that in the way that like sort of the overuse of antibiotics creates sort of super viruses the Donald Trumps of the world and the people that shoot up, you know, gay bars and 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 all, you know, ISIL and all this stuff. It is a result in some way of that inability to be compassionate for people with bad or misguided ideas. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's you attack them. The reasonable the reasonable people in that sort of minority or that fringe view, the reasonable people they're not part of that group. The people who respond to shame from others are picking up subconsciously that, hey, you can't use the N-word or you can't wear this headdress or you yeah. can't put blackface on for Halloween, right? <laughs> so it's like normal people pick that up. It's the, it's the super bugs, right, you could argue, that respond to that hatred by doubling down with the hatred. And you have to forget... They, you have to remember, they hate more than you do. Yeah. They, that's all they have. Yeah. And, and so it creates, it creates the Donald Trumps of the world who, who can unite and organize all those hateful people together and then unleash them into the world. Yeah, it's a, it's a wild, wild spot. I think, you know, as we wrap this up, one of the things that I think is good to keep in mind is there's, there's kind of like a, a thin line, a tipping point to your reaction. And so you take an affront on the ego, you know, mm -hmm. obviously first step is awareness, becoming yeah. aware of the ego and please read the book because you'll become aware of all of the ways that, you know, and be able to see ego through all of these stories and parables that have actually happened. But so, so first step is awareness. And then second step is determining your reaction once that awareness comes. And the minute that you lash out and allow ego to control you and then create the negative response, you're losing. You're like taking little pieces of yeah. your character and you're throwing them away. You or can just get them back. Throwing away energy and Throwing life away force. energy, life force, happiness, right. all of these little elements, right? But the minute that you absorb it, and Eckhart Tolle describes this really well in A New Earth, his book. The minute you just absorb it and just sit with that pressure and sit with that, and then breathe through it, you start the opposite process where you actually get stronger, where you start sure. to fortify your character, fortify your compassion, fortify all of these things. So in one aspect, you're, you're losing. In one aspect, you're gaining. And it's really a choice. It just comes down to a decision. Once there's awareness, it comes down to a decision like, how am I going to respond to this? And a positive response will build you and a negative response will tear you down. Yeah, and it's getting the, I think the, the pause is the yeah. essential part of that equation because none mm -hmm. of it is possible without the pause. So it's like, so, like I, I think about this with the edits of my book, right? They, they come back it's covered in red ink. It's like, as you said earlier, how dare you? This is all wrong. <laughs> you know, they're trying to screw me. Fuck them. Like I'm, I'm canceling the contract. And I'm a self-public. You know, all the things that you go through when you're something you care about has been criticized. Um, or or undermined as you feel it. And then, you know, it's like you step back and you don't think about it for a day. And then you look at it again and you're like, some of this is right. Okay, I'll do, I'll just, I'll just do the part that's right. I'm going to be the bigger person. I'm just going to do the part that's right. And then you do all that and you're like, and then I'm going to do all these. Other Actually, I'm just going to do all of it because they're right. You know, <laughs> so it's the pause is the essential part because yeah. um, if you just put shit on hold for a minute, you're not going to care about it as much when you come back because other stuff has happened. Yeah. 
Yeah, no doubt, man. Well, I got that process to look forward to, and yeah. I'm glad uh, I'm glad that you're shepherding through that through that. So, for those of you who don't know, I'm working with Ryan on my own books. They've taken a, a variety. They've it's taken, taken very taken long. You've been very patient. Meandering course. Um, one of them's turning into an online course, and then the, the other first book we're in proposal in proposal mode for. But it's been a it's been a cool process for that as well. And I think another great lesson from the book is just just be willing to learn from people, you know, totally. and that's that's what's really helped me is I have immense respect for you in your process of both writing and marketing. So it's it's been really easy to take comments from you and Niels because I respect, you know, what you're doing and your opinion and and you can really respect anybody's opinion. And that's one of the things that I always tell everybody here at Honest is like I if anybody has something to say, the idea will lead. You know, like there's no I don't support on any level ego trumping or position sure. trumping a good idea. Like good ideas lead. Everybody has something to teach us. Doesn't matter who it is, what customer, where it's from. Well, there's stay that, open to learning. There's that Emerson line where he says, like, every man I meet is in some way my superior, and in that I can learn from him. Mm -hmm. And that is a very egoless concept. You have yeah. to do it all that you have to work at it, but it's great. Yeah. And just because me and Ryan are talking about all this ego shit doesn't mean that we don't totally fucking blow it sometimes. Oh yeah, because, exactly. Because so yes. if you're totally blowing it and you have totally blown it, like that's normal. Forgive yourself, move on. And you just, you just learn, you get better over time. I don't think anyone writes a book about something that they have completely mastered or else it's boring, right? <laughs> if you were like, oh, that's done. You write a book about the thing you're struggling with most. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. This is awesome, Thanks, man. man. Thank you, brother. Uh, please follow Ryan at Ryan Holiday on most everything, right? I think so. Yeah. And get the book. Get the book on Amazon. Is that the best place to get it? Wherever it's cheapest. I don't care. <laughs> Ego is the enemy. Out now. Thank you so much, everybody. Much love. Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. I'd like to acknowledge the company that is the expression of so many things I love, onnit.com, O-N-N-I-T.com, and also wearspace.com with two S's, putting out some really dope clothes and supporting my favorite charities. Lastly, please check out my blog, aubreymarcus.com, for the latest in all the ventures happening in my world. If you enjoyed the podcast, tell a friend, leave a review, and let's make this positivity contagious. Thanks for tuning in.